Connections Cast, brought to you by TDN Australia and New Zealand. Hello, I'm Angus Rowland and welcome to a TDN OzNZ Connections Cast special, brought to you by Newgate, raising top class racehorses. Today, two of Australasia's best trainers sit down to lift the lid on what makes them tick, what they've learned and what to look out for in the world of racing and bloodstock. Our first guest has enjoyed a rapid rise through the training ranks at a time in the horse industry like none we've seen. Annabelle Neesham, we welcome you in fresh off training two thirds of a Group 1 trifecta to close Melbourne's Cup Carnival in front of, whisper it, crowds. Was that almost surreal? Yeah, it was wonderful having crowds back. Um, We'd sort of, I suppose, got used to having no crowds. So when they came back um, the first day, I was lucky enough to be at Everest, the Everest and it was amazing and yeah, Flemington was certainly such a big place that it would feel very empty without crowds. So although there are only 10,000, it was still great to have them back on course. Absolutely, particularly when they're cheering your horse. Now, Annabelle, we're joined by a former employer on the podcast, but as any Sydney trainer can attest, she is now some of your stiffest competition. Trainer, trailblazer, ambassador and resident of the Hall of Fame, she has not taken a backward step and is just about to embark on another mission to the Hunter Valley in the never-ending search for that next stable star. Gay Waterhouse, thank you for joining us. I imagine the prospect of getting up into the valley is appealing after the last few months. It certainly is. It's, uh, we're looking forward to it. I go with a, a, a group of young people. I love being with young people. And we go around and we look at the horses. We'll probably see 600 yearlings. Uh, sometimes they, we even see some of the ones from the other sales. So we, we see a, a vast number of the young horses that will go on offer in the beginning of January at the Magic Million sale. Now, Gay, I want to start not talking about horses. I want to start talking about people. You are five years into a partnership with Adrian Bott. You make a formidable pairing. But my question is, if training partnerships were a thing when you were working for TJ, do you think that we ever would have seen TJ Smith and Gay Waterhouse in race books? Oh, definitely. We were a training partnership, most definitely. Uh, You know, how, how could you not want to be in a training partnership with probably the greatest trainer Australia's ever produced? You know, can you imagine Annabelle winning 33 consecutive trainers premierships and winning them by such margins that, you know, people nowadays don't believe. Uh, and of course, they had less meetings in those days than we do nowadays. Now, we we're very much a partnership, but it wasn't the fashion or it wasn't legal to have, uh, you know, partnerships but we, we worked we bibbed and bubbed and if I was at the races dad would be home at the cold front now I'm home at the cold front and Adrian's at the races you know it's nice I must say it's it's a it's certainly as you would find Annabelle uh, it's, a, it's a it's a big task when you're there by yourself because you're juggling so many balls aren't you well obviously when you start your you know your numbers are small and it's probably manageable but I can absolutely see why Gay went into partnership um, particularly there's more and more racing and, and there's a lot of interstate racing and it's hard to be everywhere at one time. And um, I suspect, I don't know, Gay would be able to answer this, but um, since I've been training, the demands on giving out communications to owners is increasing, particularly with technology and videos and everything. 
and that's that's a lot of your time is is doing that whereas you know perhaps back in the day there, there wasn't that technology so owners probably didn't get as much I think trainers probably concentrate more on just training rather than having to do a lot of communication so I think sharing um, the workload is probably what's um, led to a lot of trainers going into partnership and look I, I'm sure if we keep growing it's something I would certainly consider in the future as well. The biggest thing I find is that firstly you don't want to go into partnership with someone steal your business because that's the other thing you know yeah. they come in they they get to know intimately all your horses owners and all your inner thoughts uh, and then they go off and start in opposition so that can be a problem because then it de- cuts you off at the knees all that hard work you've put in can go to nothing Adrian and I maybe one of the things that we're born on the same birthday and I'm at a, a stage of my life where I'm very happy to have that. But when I was your age, uh, Annabelle, I literally did it all on my own and I did the communications to the owners. Dad was very big on it. And that was long before text, emails, FaceTime, all those things. And he would come home every morning and spot on a quarter to seven, he would ring all his owners. And they ranged from the Prime Minister of New South Wales, the Premier of New South Wales through to the Prime Minister of Australia. And he was an expert in the short information. And I think that's what I've followed with him. People like to hear from you, but to get through the volume of your owners and make sure that they all get a bit of Annabelle or Gay, it's important that you keep it short and sweet. Otherwise, you're spending all your time on the phone and not with your horses. And the name of the game is the races you win. You're only as good as the horse that won the last race. And, and you never can take that out of your mind. Annabelle, I want to ask you a question. You're a graduate of the the gay production line, if you, you like. Uh, of, uh, what of, is that production line? It should be the Gay Waterhouse Academy, isn't it, Annabelle? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Look at the product. <laughs> exactly. You, you have a first-class degree from the Gay Waterhouse uh, Academy for elite horse people, and not just trainers, stud managers, uh, agents, the, the list goes on. But I, I want to ask you, can you give me your read on what the gay method is for training people. And then afterwards, Gay, I want you to tell us how close she is. Oh, I think the biggest lesson I learned off Gay is, is hard work. Um, her work ethic's sort of unbelievable. Um, and I think she instills that in all of her staff and um, probably attention to detail as well. She, I remember being amazed one day, I think I forgot to send through a couple of temperatures to you and you're straight on the phone at 10 past three, where, where are the temperatures? You know, you just never, you never miss the beat. And I think um, that's probably the biggest lesson is making sure you're across everything. And, and Gay certainly was across absolutely everything. Um, even when I was in Melbourne um, with horses, you know, there's constant communication and, and um, you know, she never left any stone unturned and, and was obviously communicating with a lot of people, but, um, never forgot anything. You've got it in a nutshell, uh, Annabelle. Um, the attention to detail is essential. It's, you must tick your, cross your, your T's and dot your I's. And you, if you walk into the stable and the slightest thing goes tick, 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 it's not right. Get it fixed. Get it fixed immediately because it will become a major thing, either with your boys and girls that work for you or your horse issues or whatever it is. It has to be fixed. I say in the office... Be the squeaky wheel, because the squeaky wheel gets oiled. And the only way you'll get things done in your own stable, in your own personal life, or in with the, the, the horse racing and, and, and the 
authority is to be the squeaky wheel. Did anyone take Gay's temperature when those two temperatures came in late? Is it, did, you, did you crack 38, uh, Gay? Wait, simmering around 38. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Newgate, raising top-class racehorses. Newgate has built a reputation not only as a leading stallion farm, but a leading stallion nursery. In the last few years alone, yearling buyers could have purchased stallion prospects of the quality of champion first season sire better than ready. Vinery Studs Coolmore Stud Stakes winner Exceedance, Jubawi's Group 1 winning champion two-year-old of South Africa Willow Magic, Group 1 McKinnon Stakes winner and Young Western Australian sire Awesome Rock, Cambridge Studs champion two-year-old Sword of State and Newgate's very own champion two-year-old and Golden Slipper winner Stay Inside. Newgate raising and consigning top-class future stallions. Let's move on to the horses. You, you both tasted initial Group 1 success very early in your career with just incidentally New Zealand-bred horses descending from Sir Tristram, that's incidental, that you inherited from other trainers. And that's the piece I want to hone in on. Some would say, well... Gay got Tiakau Nick or Annabelle got Moonga from other trainers. But neither of those horses had won group ones before. What is the challenge of inheriting a horse from another horse racing professional? And I might start with you, Gay. Well, the most important thing is you want the horse to be successful and you don't want to fail for the owner because he's made or she has made an executive decision to change stable. And that's not an easy thing to do. With Tiako Nick, it was coming from one country to another. And the horse was offered to my father, who was a great, great trainer at the time. And he very kindly said, no, my, my daughter is a better trainer. Well, of course, I'd never trained anything. Probably the puppy <laughs> dog about the most. But I'd been with him as his assistant for a very long time. Anyway, David Ellis, it's history now, gave me the horse to train. Now, I was terribly raw. And I didn't know if I could train, but I had a gut feeling that I wasn't going to fail. And so I just observed the horse. And I think that's very important. Um, you must use your eyes and your senses when you're around the animals and try to pick up what is it? What is he missing today that can lift him to that next level? And you know, you don't know if he's going to, or he was already a winner of the St. Ledger in New Zealand. I can't quite remember now, but he was already an accomplished horse. But to lift him to the next level, that's that's the next thing, as you know, Annabelle. Yeah, Annabelle, you inherited one from a fairly handy trainer in Chris Waller. How do you improve on Chris Waller's efforts? I, I don't think you do. I don't think uh, you do improve Chris. Um, he, he leaves no stone unturned. I think I was fortunate that he was a horse with a lot of promise. Um, he, he'd only had one racing prep with Chris and he was clearly going to make um, himself into a Ramwick Rose Hill Guineas type of horse. So um, I probably, I, I suppose I felt the pressure a little bit to take him to that next level because it was expected of him. Um, he'd caught people's attention um, in, the, in the spring as a three-year-old. So um, he, he's actually a very easy, been an easy horse to train. That didn't show a huge amount at home. So or in his trials. So I was a little bit apprehensive when he had his first start. But um, yeah, I think there is, I've, I did feel that bit of pressure um, because Aquist had put a lot of faith into me. And, um, you know, it was 
quite a big deal, I suppose, to move a horse from Chris that was going well into my stable. So um, initially it was probably just relief that, that we could get that group one to his name. And, and fortunately for me, he's continued to improve and, and progress. Do you observe one another as trainers gay? I mean, Tiako Nick's a bad example because he was in another country, but horses like all our mob come your way and, and from other trainers. Do you see what other trainers have done and gone, oh, what if I try something different? Is that part of the battle? No, I just look at the horse. I just yeah. look at the horse. And he tells me everything. You know, often I might have seen him racing before, uh, but the biggest thing is to get horses to relax. You've got to get them firstly to relax in the stable, eat and sleep. Then you've got to get them fit because half the time they're running around unfit. And uh, you've got to get to sort of know their personalities, you know, uh, what they can, what they can, excuse the expression, cop. You know, what they, some horses need lots of work like people, others need less. Uh, you've just got to ebb and flow with them, haven't you, Annabelle? I think so. And I think you're right. You've got to read the horse yourself. They've changed environments. And, and um, yeah, I think it's sort of almost trying. I try and certainly the ones I've had, particularly from Europe, I, I don't, it's hard to find out everything about them. So you just go with feel and, and feel your way and um, probably learn from mistakes with them. But um, I think, as Gay said, just using your eye and, and your instincts probably the best way. You mentioned European imports and both of you have tasted Group one success with with horses from the northern hemisphere. Annabelle Zaki's a very different horse to Moanga. Uh, do you approach training the European horses differently than you would a, 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 an Antipodean horse, which might be a little bit more uh, robust of an individual? Yeah, I mean. Zaki's actually sort of got a typical Australian physique. Mm. He's got a lot of bone and he's a strong. A lot of the Europeans haven't got much bone, but he has. Um, but I probably would approach them differently in that I, I don't put any time frame on them in terms of trialing. Obviously, when they pre-train and come into your stable, you normally know how long it's going to take you, give or take a week, when they'll get to a trial stage. Um, but certainly with Zaki and the other few that I've had, I've just felt my way with them. And, and I do find they take a bit of time to acclimatise and um, condition themselves to the tracks like I've I've personally found they fill their suspensories a bit and you back off them and then just knowing when to, to go again. And some of them don't get there as quickly as others. But um, I think the main thing is just not to rush them. And um, it's usually fairly obvious when they're ready to, to do that bit more. Okay. Is it partly to, to Annabelle's point about Zaki as a type? Is it partly about identifying an individual that is better suited to this area? I mean, you've been having success with import since Secret Savings won a Doncaster in, in the in the 90s. You've sort of seen it evolve. Have you seen the, the type of horse that works evolve? They're so different from the Australian horse. Secret Savings, I didn't really know a great deal about him. You know, uh, the boss, Nassar Nuta, very kindly sent me the horse and I had one brief win the Doncaster, win group one. Uh, I knew I had a quality individual. That's half the battle. Uh, but... Uh, with the European horses there, you know, it was very interesting being out at Werribee this year, Annabelle. Um, it, you know, we often think that the European horse is a delicate horse. If you look at him, yes, he is. He's a much finer boned, as you mentioned. The Australian is a rather stout and, and, and heavy boned horse. But 
that the workload they do is outright amazing and far more than the Australian horse. And it, it really sort of brought home in no uncertain terms what horses are capable of. And I think a lot of trainers nowadays, a lot of perception is to mollycoddle them. And that's the worst thing in the world one can do. You know, a horse has to be fit. And it's not running around a paddock to get fit. He's living in a box most of the time. I think one of the biggest things with Australia and overseas is our horses get out and about more. And we spell them. We give them breaks between their racing preparations, which they don't get in Europe. Uh, but, you know, it was interesting going to the Cox Plate. You know, if you'd if the, they hadn't sort of bumped and they'd gone to the line together, there could easily have been a dead heat. One was Australian trained and one was, you know, Irish, Joseph O'Brien trained. Totally different ways of training, yet nothing in the result really. Whether you are buying or selling, Inglis Digital is your trusted, established and progressive market for online bloodstock sales. We have more than 8,000 registered bidders and have sold over $75 million worth of stock in 2021 alone. Inglis Digital graduates have won 2,100 races in Australia so far this year, including group winners, stakes performers, city winners and multiple winners. Buyers love it. Sellers love it. Visit EnglishDigital.com for details of the next sale. The gap has definitely narrowed between the hemispheres in, in certain disciplines. And obviously a lot has been made of our ability to condition sprinters here in Australia. The other area that we excel is with two-year-olds. Now, Gay, I want to bring up two-year-olds with you and go right back to the early days of your career because it was it was a rocky beginning to, to your training career. But after you tasted initial success, a criticism that was levelled uh, against you was your success with two-year-olds and the fact that you hadn't had an awful lot. Did you have to shift a mindset or the way you worked to become what you are now, which is the most successful trainer of Group 1 two-year-old winners of all time? Interesting. I couldn't train a two-year-old to save my life. <laughs> I put too much work into them. And I was so sure I was doing it right. And Dad said his final parting word before he died, he said, you make a man sick. He said, I'm sick of backing your two-year-olds. They'd never win a race. And I turned to him and retort. I said, and you break them down. And he said, this is a typical father-daughter conversation. And he said, well, I've won six golden slippers. Anyway, as, as history had it, I went off to Queensland with Rob and Dad died that weekend. So I came home and I thought to myself, I'm not going to let that stop me. I'm going to set about and make sure that I turn things around. So I went about just giving them the work, short and sharp. I changed my training methods totally and I thought, I'm not going to let this be my failure, my stumbling block. Dad's picked up on it. I've been too stupid and stubborn and young and whatever it might be. We won 42 two-year-old races that season. So you don't, you know, it's amazing how sometimes a kick in the bum and often by someone who loves you very dearly can really get you moving along. And that's what it did. Now I'm probably ready for another kick in the bum, may I say. <laughs> <laughs> Gay, 
do you think TJ identified that you had the cattle and you weren't doing uh, doing what needed to be done with them? Because I always wondered whether it was a, a shift in the type of horse you were buying, but you're suggesting it was the way you conditioned them. Conditioning. I was, yeah. I was doing too much with them. You know, they're only babies. You think about a baby, you don't do too much with that. You know, he's growing all the time. The two-year-old's growing all the time. They can't cop being pounded into the ground. People have the perception, I'm not sure if it's the same with you, Annabelle, they used to think, oh, you know, she, she gallops into the, gallops the guts out of them. <laughs> Good Australian expression. You can't, I won't go over, we travel every year around the world and we go to all the leading trainers and try to learn from them and bring it back to Australia. And it's interesting when you see someone like Wesley Ward, the wizard of two-year-olds. There he goes to Ascot, never been seen before an American, and blows them away. And he does it by short, sharp work. And my gosh, it's sharp. And my gosh, it's short. You know, it's, it's mind-boggling. But he wants to inject speed into the two-year-olds. That's what it's about. You know, it's interesting in Australia, the Aussie suffix, all our horses are experts or fabulous up to a mile. That's what we excel at. Short, sharp races. Go to Canterbury on a Wednesday. What's the longest race? One 1900 and the rest are all 1100 or 12. In Europe, they don't start a two-year-old till it's really over 1400 metres. And on their tracks, it's more like a mile race, isn't it, Annabelle? So the, the, Absolutely. Yeah, so the whole mindset and the training and the, and the colder conditions make the horse mature more slowly. Whereas in Australia, this blazing sunshine, all the oats and corn, what we used to feed, I don't know about anymore, is just injecting speed and strength into the two-year-old. So you can take that horse overseas and be very competitive at that shorter distance. There'll always be the exception, always. I'm interested, and, and obviously, Gay, your record in the Golden Slipper is without parallel, but both of you... There's, a, there's another two-year-old race that is significant in terms of its impact on Australian racing and breeding that happens much earlier, the Breeders' Plate. And, Annabelle, you've worked with Breeders' Plate winners, you know, with Kieran and, and, and that, that sort of thing, and, Gay, you've trained plenty. I'll start with you, Annabelle. Is there a difference in getting a horse ready that early in the season versus bringing it out in, say, January? I know we're talking fine margins here, but is that four months a lot different? The one thing I did learn um, when I first came back to Sydney was, was with a cult called Dubious for Kieran. Mm. And he was just a ready-made professional two-year-old. I was riding him at the time. He just did everything perfectly. And he never changed. You know, a year later, he was exactly the same. He was just ready-made, ready to go. And I think it was that professionalism that won him the race. Um, I think you'll get the odd horse that's that does things wrong, but it's got exceptional talent and it can win that race. But I mean, Gay, Gay's won countless breeders' plates and I'm sure she'll tell you that um, they're all very professional and you can't make them ready if they're not. They just hold their hand up and very few do that early on. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Annabelle, that they, they, that two-year-old that wins a breeders' plate or gym crack stakes. And may I say that that is the, the race that invariably is the winner of the Golden Sipper comes out of. And it, it, the horse that produces that natural speed so early in the season is the horse that invariably goes on in the autumn. I, Dad used to say to me, 
if they're not up and winning before January 1st, don't really think they can win the golden slipper. Because you can, then you're on the hurry up stakes. That's what mm. I say to Adrian, we cannot afford to be on the hurry up stakes. We have to have our horses ready by before the 1st of January. So that after that, you can just pick and choose where you want that two-year-old to run. Let him shoot the breeze. Let him say, yes, he's... When I had Vancouver, he was down to run in one of the lead-up races to the slipper. I, had to, I was up in the Hunter at the time and I had to ring and say, I can't run him this Saturday. And they were all very you know, big-time owners in, in racing. And they said, they didn't really question me too much. I just said, look, the horse is not ticking right at present. We waited an extra week and it's history now. With um, Overreach, who won the Golden Slipper for George Altamonte, she was going to go down for the Blue Diamond. I knew I had the best two-year-old filly, but she was all of a sudden hit a, a flat spot as they can. And I rang up George and I said, I've got scrambled eggs on my hands at present. He said, what do you mean? I said, I've lost the filly. I, I, I haven't got her at present. And he said, oh, we'll send her home. I said, no. I said, just let's shoot the breeze for 10 days. She'll either come right or she'll go the other way. And she came right. You have to ebb and flow with your horses and two-year-olds probably more so than an older horse. That's really interesting. I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I regularly am, but I feel like yeah, there is I would a perception. Say never. Your wife would say never. <laughs> She'd say plenty. Uh, I, I, there's a perception that two-year-old racing is buy a fast horse, get it fit, point it at the races. But like the Melbourne Cup, a race like the Golden Slipper, there's only a handful of trainers that have won it. And, and you tend to win it multiple times once you've, you've won it. Is there, do you know a slipper horse when it comes into the stable? Do you know a slipper type when it comes into the stable? Do they present themselves that early or do you really have to mould them? They certainly do. Not all. Farnham was a bit of a, uh, uh, an enigma. He was a very sort of, as that, as that breed can be, not a single doubt, can sort of run under the radar, can't they, Annabelle? Yeah. You know, funny little chubby little things sometimes. And he was exactly that. And that's why we went to the, the Canberra Maiden. Uh, he was like a little roly-poly, but he just kept improving. And I think you've got to have two things. Usually the golden slipper horse does present it. It's a precocious type of horse. He's usually with the cult, a big strong type. But not always. Sometimes they expose themselves a little bit longer. And, you know, Haha, for instance, she was a great big fat. So funny. At that time, I had a very strong hand going into that slipper. And a few other horses looked more obvious. And Jimmy Cassidy came to the tower, which was the old tower in, at Randwick. And he said, have you, got a, have you got a horse for me? Have you got a slipper mount for me? And I said, hang around here long enough, kid. And I said, you might get one. And that was ha-ha, because Brian York, our stable jockey, was already committed to the, the slipper favourite. And ha-ha went from going well to And then I said to Rob, we coming up with the slipper. I said, I've got, I've got the slipper winner. She just came right. Timing's everything, isn't it, Annabelle? It's timing, really. It's like boiling an egg, isn't it? Yeah, particularly with the two-year-olds, and they, they can change and disappoint you so so quickly as well. But um, interesting what you're saying about, you know, if you can bank that prize money early before Christmas and have a setback, like you said, you had with, with Vancouver and Overreach, it just makes life easier. I think a lot of people, a lot of trainers, chasing chasing the prize money and, and maybe running them when they're not ready just to try and bank that money to get them into those races but if you haven't got that pressure you can just wait for them to be ready um well, the biggest thing know, is in your own time 
owners putting pressure on you and ourselves, they're they wanting you to do things that sometimes isn't right for the horse too. So you have to be, you know, it's really a delicate balance leading into those big races because expectations are so high, aren't they? Well, a lot of these, you know, the stallion funds that have spent, you know, millions on these colts, there's really two races to make them stallions. It's to make them, you know, big stallions. And that's the golden slipper at two and the Coolmore at three. And, um, you know, you, if you want to be winning those, or certainly if you're not winning them, you, you want to be certainly getting them into the races. So there does come, I think, pressure um, when you're training those expensive colts. Have you ever dreamed about working with thoroughbreds or know someone who would jump at the opportunity? Well, here's your chance. With applications now open for the Thoroughbred Industry Careers Explorer Cadetship, a pathway into the thoroughbred breeding and racing industry through a 12-month education and practical training course. The 2022 intake commences on the 14th of February and is open to those between 18 and 24 years. Don't miss the opportunity. You've both trained for big outfits. Uh, Annabelle, Aquis has obviously been a huge supporter of you right from the outset and, and Gay, I've run out of fingers counting the number of big stud operations that you've conditioned horses for over the years. Who are harder, the, the titans of industry to train for or the mum and pop who have one pride and joy with you as a, a, as a trainer? Uh, I mean, I, I'm fortunate Aquis are very easy to deal with and I've got, you know, they understand if they're not ready, they're not ready and um i think from that sense um you know they're, they're actually quite easy to train because um you know they don't want you to run a horse if it's not going to run well but uh, probably at the moment I, I possibly find it's those horses with your with your smaller owners or smaller share holders um they probably feel the disappointment a little bit more um you know particularly if it's their first horse for example um and, it, and it's not showing much and you move it on i find and, you know, dealing with mm. their disappointment can, can often be the hardest. Yes, it's, no, it's difficult. It's hard. That's where you've got to try to lead them away and lead them down the, the path to be it success or, or failure uh, and, and try to help them cope with uh, the disappointments or the, or the excitement. Sometimes the ones that are most successful are the least grateful. <laughs> Heaven knows why. But, you know... It, it, Going back to your original question, the people who are professionals in the sport are, are the easiest to train for because they understand and they've been there and done that. Yeah. I mean, look, all, all, all clients are important, right? That's something I know, Gay, you, from the outset, dealing with clients is, is one of your true gifts. And I... I I'm going to take a left turn before we come back to the horses here because we're segueing on. Gay, you, you'd have to be living under a rock not to know that Gay Waterhouse trod the boards and went to, went to RADA and did some TV work. And Annabelle, how many instruments are you proficient in? Five or six? None anymore. <laughs> uh, great but what, where i'm leading it with this is you both uh studied in a study disciplines that are on face value very removed from the horse racing game but take discipline uh, did those more artistic pursuits and i'm not trying to justify three years of theater school for myself here uh did those artistic pursuits help you when you started to deal with clients and in the training space, starting with Gay? 
I think with the theatre, it, it helped me pro project myself. You know, uh, I went over very much as Tommy's daughter and over there, of course, you know, I, I didn't know anyone. And when you go for an audition, there's 500, 1,000 people going for the same audition. So you have to have enormous self-belief. I think that's essential. I think being someone who is artistic, like Annabelle and myself, is you, you have a, a feel for finer things. You're not a sort of go in, slap on the back. You're able to go in and sort of smell the roses. And I think that's important with training animals. I don't care. I've got a puppy at present. That's my big job at present, training uh, Billy, the, the, the cavoodle. But, I mean, everything is about uh, a discipline. With my grandchildren now, I've got five of them. Uh, William over is Tom, Tom and Hoda have just moved to, to London in the last month. Uh, for his work, and they're go going to a school in Knightsbridge there, and no, not not with Royals, the other one. And uh, <laughs> William got a prize for good manners. <laughs> well, with COVID, they lived with me for a while, Rob and me. And uh, you know, I'm a bit of a stickler because I've been brought up that way. And uh, you know, it was nice to hear that he got his. He was very proud to come home for that. But you know, that's running the whole sort of idea from your stable or your family or whatever it is that uh, discipline, but also being able to see things that might be something that might the average eyes might miss, mightn't they, Annabelle? Yeah, absolutely. I think attention to detail and and um, the one the one thing I learnt, you know, off you was presentation. You're such a stickler for that and. And, um, you know, it is important, obviously, you know, Gay's operation have got big clients and they look after their clients extremely well. And I think um, if you're articulate and, and um, you present yourself well, that's only going to that's only going to help um, whether the music. I don't know whether my music background's changed anything in that sense. Probably not. But um, I think, yeah, discipline's a, a big thing. And I'm at my staff all the time, nagging them. Um, which probably drives them up the wall, but you know I've I've got high standards, and I think you've got to you've got to you know keep your high standards if if you want to keep improving. Well, I think what you say is so right, and it's interesting. I've been going to the races on the television, which I thoroughly enjoy because I feel I see a lot more. When you're at the races, there are a lot of distractions, and the one thing that amazes me is how ordinary the average person looks on the television. And I think to myself, if I had a horse, would I give it to X or Y? Well, you'll definitely get one, Annabelle, because you look fabulous on the television. You always <laughs> present nicely. No, I've been that. You present nicely, you're articulate, you know what you're talking about, and you get the results. But some of these people get on the television, and I think, well, firstly, they look like they've fallen out of bed. Oh, the big, slobby-looking things. And I think, if they look like that now in front of us, and that's what they're projecting, what are their stables going to look like? You know? That's what I go back. I say, you are the product of what you have at home, the way you present yourself. You ask people to come in and spend X dollars on a horse. They want to be able to say, look, I'm sitting next to Annabelle. Doesn't she look lovely? And isn't it nice to be with her? And, you know, and it's a journey that you're taking people on. It's not just about owning a horse. It's a whole journey that they engage in with you when they have a horse with you. That's how I look on it. It's a really interesting insight. And I think in an era when we're trying to attract new people to the sport of racing, that televisual image is almost like a job interview, isn't it? For, for new owners, you are presenting and, and you want to make yourself and the sport uh, more appealing.
World champion sprinter Harry Angel, an electric dual group one winner with the precocity to claim the Mill Reef Stakes at two. Time form rated 132, more than star stallions exceed Nixell and Frosted, a son of outcross sire Dark Angel, Europe's answer to I Am Invincible. With outstanding first yearlings hitting sales rings this season and some of Godolphin's best mares in his early books, now is the time to invest in Harry before his offspring take flight. On the subject of presentation, let's talk about yearlings. Gay, you're about to shoot up to the Hunter Valley, and I know you're ridiculously thorough when it comes to your yearling inspections. Uh, every waking... The word ridiculous is a very poor use. At the end of the day, it's not ridiculous. The attention to detail, if we don't get it right, how do you find the Trifontaine for 75000 that wins $2 million and is sold for nearly the same to Japan? How do you find Sebring sold for 120 that sells for 28 million? It is never ridiculous. It is the attention to detail and looking at those horses. But going back to your question, uh, that first of all, nowadays the hardest thing is the handlers. Of course, they are so short of boys and girls to help them on the farms, same in the stables, same in the hospitality mm. industry or wherever we are. I'm sure television's the same or whatever. Um, they don't have enough time to train the kids to lead the horses. Now, I don't care. Dad used to say, and gosh, it's a good expression, I'm not training the horse to win a walking race. So you don't have to, the walk has become the big thing, hasn't it, Annabelle? The way he walks, the way he pulls his hind legs through. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> We're training horses to be gallopers. So you really want to see if the horse is fluid and if he carries himself well. But, you know, uh, the, the kids often can't handle them, so the horses jack up and, uh, you know, it can be quite quite difficult. And I appreciate your attention to detail in uh, picking me up on my questioning. I'm going to tighten my, my belt in that regard as well. May I ask, obviously each yearling is an individual, right? You, you, you are assessing each horse on its individual merits. But are there any golden rules that you both adhere to? And, and Gay, I'll start with you when looking at a yearling, perhaps something that is an automatic disqualification point. Um, well, I like, I like an intelligent horse. I love an intelligent horse. I love a horse that when he looks at you, you say, gosh, has he got a lovely head or has he got a bright eye? Because that's really what you've got to train. You don't want a dill pot. Temperament is essential. I'm sure Annabelle would agree with that. Um, you've got to have hoof. No hoof, no horse. Nowadays, horses have got no hooves. I don't know what's the matter with people. They've just got no hooves at all. So we've really got a problem that once the breeder sold the horse, Annabelle and I have to deal with that problem. And, you know, it really is a problem. I don't remember it 20 years ago being as big a problem. And I think um, the great thing of seeing them on the farms is, um, you know, often you get to the sales and they're, they've been prepared within an inch of their lives by, by then. But obviously, if you go up there at the start of their preparations, you see a slightly more raw product. And I prefer seeing them at that stage as well. And another interesting thing I learned, I remember when I was working for you, Gay, um, when we were down in Melbourne for the carnival, I was lucky enough to do um, the inspections on the Victorian farms with you. And I had to write the notes and I wasn't allowed to tell you the breeding. You didn't, you didn't care at that stage for what they were by or I think you didn't want it to, to sway your opinion and I think you were just looking at the horse and I think, you know, that's important and it's the, the good horses come out of various different stallions and out of various different mares and, um, you know, I assume you, the reason you do that is if you 
find an absolute belter that you love um, without much of a pedigree. You're, you don't want to be swayed by by that. So you're in, in the initial stages, just looking at the horse. I think that's what you've got to do. Unfortunately, we're all influenced by the pedigree. The pedigree page tells you how much and the horses you could really, your horse can't read his pedigree page. That's what I say to people, they cannot read it. The pedigree page is important because it can show you what the horse can do. But if I believed in the pedigree page, then Piero could not have raced as a two-year-old and been mm. champion Australasian two year old because his mm. pedigree page defied him doing that. He cannot read it. Vancouver by that Maggiadori. No one expected him to be. But you know, you've got to, when you're looking at those yearlings, just put it when you, and I'm sure you're the same, Annabelle, you look at the, the pedigree page, you look at the, the horse, you try to, it's almost like making um, making dough or something. You're trying to see which is the one. And of course, you, like me, work with a team of people and they're trying to achieve, you know, be it the stallion prospect or the filly that might become the, the champion mare, you know. And, and with fillies, it's probably a little bit different. The, Boys can be a bit more random. The, the fillies, you do need, you've got to have a page. Dad said to me, don't buy me a, a filly that hasn't got any page. So sometimes they'll look, they'll say to me, oh, we love this horse. And I'll say, look at the page. I said, how could that make a stallion or a good filly? Come on, wake up to yourself. You've got to have some guts in it as well as having the beautiful horse. So that's when I go back to the page. I want a bit of guts. When I say guts, I want a mare that's either a winning a young mare, I love young mares, um, because I wouldn't want to be having a baby now, whereas Annabelle, you'd be fine. You know, it really <laughs> is. That's exactly what it is with horses. And the, the second thing is uh, the nutrition to the ba baby foal, but that's another story. But then you go and you look, you, the mare's a winner, and then if she's thrown winners, if she's a stakes winner, and that, of course, costs more, or she's thrown a stakes winner, you know, it's nice, and it's nice to have it up in the front part of the pedigree, not down where, I don't know much about my grandmother, I never met her. So, you know, what influences she had on gay? Nilch. But the, you know, that first and second pedigree page is important, or line of the pedigree page. Enjoying the podcast? There's so much more to uncover when you subscribe to the TDN AusNZ Daily Edition. Sales reports, industry insights and interviews, race results with actual pedigree insight, even trivia. Go to tdnoznz.com.au and subscribe now. So, so once you've found a horse that you love, how much risk are you willing to take? And Annabelle and I talked about this before we started recording a little bit, but we're, we're talking essentially about buying on spec. If there is a, a yearling that you feel you must have, but you don't have a buyer for it. Will you go ahead and 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 buy, knowing that you it's the individual you you feel you want and need? Yeah, I mean the, the first thing is to put a value on it, um, is to of course to where you think it fits. Um, but if I love a horse, I mean you need to. I for me, I I feel I need a product to sell. You're always getting people asking you, inquiring about buying into a horse. So um, you know, I think having horses there that people can buy into obviously you've got to be aware of you know payment terms etc and, and you don't want to be owning them yourself uh, or I certainly don't really want to be so you've got to know you're going to be able to sell them but for me I, I want to spec horses because I want to bring new clients into the stable so um, I think as long as you I, I have to love the horse to buy it you, you want to you're going to look at it every day and I want to bring it out the stable and just love looking at it and 
I find mm. they're easy to sell. If you love what you've bought, it's very easy to unsell it. Only in Australia, and Annabelle, you'd know better than anyone, only in Australia are we the mugs to go and buy to the horses and spec them. And I use that facetiously because, like you, I love to have horses around me that I love. And often, you know, yearling can change between a yearling and a two-year-old. They'll say to Adrian, gosh, I must have been drunk when we bought that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know they all revert to how you really see them in the beginning it's really funny they can go through adolescent ugly parts where they are a bit ungainly and then they come back to what you've but what you've first seen but in Europe no one would think of going and specking a horse there would be the agent who would buy it or the or the principal and in Australia we tend to shoot a little bit from the hip uh, and it was interesting years ago Rob and I went to the Tasmanian sales and not one trainer really put his hand in the air there. It was all the owners. So they'd sit at a table like Magic Millions and they would have their owners buy the horses at the table, which is a much better idea. One of the reasons I'm sure the Gold Coast sale has been so successful is that Annabelle or uh, ourselves or wherever the other trainers are, are able to be at the tables there with their owners supporting them and the horses are done you know, put to bed then, then and there. And it's much easier because, you know, mm. use by dates happens with horses and an owner will say, why didn't you offer me that horse in January when you're talking about it in November of the same year? They think it's got a use by date like a can of beans on the shelf. It hasn't. Often the horse isn't ready to be offered to the owners or it's been maybe growing and coming in and out of the stable. You know, so it's, it's, it's a hard thing going and specking them, isn't it, Annabelle? Yeah, it is. Um, and as you say, it doesn't really happen in Europe, but I believe that's why it's it's much easier for certainly for young trainers starting out like myself. <laughs> There's more people wanting to get involved anyway at smaller shares, five and ten percent than it is back home. It's There's just so many more. I don't know if it's I'm not sure if it's correct, but I was told that one in every 200 Australian own a share in a racehorse, which is. Yeah, Oswald's put out a stat, I think it was 240-odd or something like that, which is astonishing in a population of, of 25 million um, and, and a great uh, advertisement for the, the sport. And, and Gay, I'm, I'm starting to sound like your jumper, social element, the amount of obstacles you've had to clear in your career. But one of the obstacles that was, was aimed at you in terms of, of something that Gay hasn't done yet uh, midway through your career was produce a horse that went on to be a stallion. Obviously, you have broken that taboo in no uncertain terms. In fact, you did it with two horses that were in the stable at the same time, Northern Media and Sebring, and, and Piero and Vancouver on from there. My question is, did anything change around that time? Did you Were you shopping for different horses or did it just happen that the stars aligned and, and something clicked? Yes, I'll tell you something. The thing that makes me jump higher through hoops, and I don't know if you're the same, Annabelle, when they say she can't do it, she can't train two-year-olds, she can't train stallions, she can't train this, she can't train that. If I hear it one more time, she can't, gosh, they know a lot about me. They don't know anything about me. And, and it's the same, I'm sure, with you, Annabelle. You know, people want to put you into a box. They love little box. So I thought, oh, buggy you, I'm not going to be put in a box. And I just went about training the horses. Look, Northern Media came to us quite by chance. Two horses came from another stable to us mm. and they both came and I didn't really know anything about them. 
And then all of a sudden you start to scratch the surface and he just kept improving. And I think when we go back to the temperament, he was a great temperament. But, you know, the, the stallion market wasn't that big and really until Sebring came along. Sebring was the highest priced stallion placed in Australia. And the, 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 so, you know, you go to Europe. Uh, I have a friend over there that's got the champion two-year-old there at present. And they were talking, I don't know, a certain amount of money, but it was leagues less than Australia. You know, Australia is an amazing place to think you can buy a horse for X dollars and sell it for many millions, life-changing amounts. You know, that doesn't happen overseas. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to demean nothing like a Dane as a stallion because he was excellent. And I know Les Bridge is forever grateful that nothing like a Dane exists because without him, no hot Danish. But you really did go to another level with Northern Media and Sebring. And now Piero. Uh, and I guess I can I can direct this question to you as well, Annabelle, because you've, you, you, you didn't bloom as a trainer fully formed. You worked in the industry leading up to it. Do you gravitate towards horses that are related to or side by animals that you've had something to do with. Yeah, for me, I've, I've, you know, I've not been doing it for long enough. Obviously, I had a lot to do with Merchant Navy when I worked for, mm. for Kieran right from the start, and um, through to you know selling shares in him, through to riding him. Um, so I've taken great interest in in uh, his yearlings, and I've got a number of his two-year-olds in the stable that I really like. So. Uh, maybe I'll end up that way, but it just goes back again to the same thing. Just really try and buy what I love. Probably doesn't matter what it's by, but um, I'm sure if you've trained there, if you've trained the stallion, the sire of them, it, it probably, um, yeah, it gives maybe a little bit more satisfaction. Okay. Did Pino's win, was it its win in the Oaks all the more satisfying because you trained Piero? It was. Dad used to sit for hours uh, coming up to the sales, looking at the, the uh, pedigrees and the, and the catalogue, and he loved to go back to families he knew. I find with families you've trained before that often the characteristics, like if the filly was a bit fizzy, quite often mm. that will carry on with, with the progeny. So you know how to train it because you've had that there in your stable. Um, with the Colts, it really depends. I find the Colts are a bit like young boys. You've got to keep them occupied. Otherwise, they get up to mischief or they hurt themselves or they do something dumb. So I keep them very busy. And I think if you keep them busy, it's amazing what can they can levels they can achieve. All right. This is a question we ask all the guests on Connections Cast. Gay, if you were put in charge of racing in Australia tomorrow, what would you do on your first day? Quite simple. Cut off. I wouldn't allow anyone to have to pay to go to the races. I think it's the most stupid thing that you go to Randwick and pay $65 to go into a cold course where you've got a food's overpriced, drinks overpriced. It's the whole gamut. Go to the pub, go watch it on telly, be on your phone. Hello. I don't have to pay to go to those places. Mm -hmm. Why would I want to go to a big old race course and, and have to pay to go in there and then get bailed up by these people on the gate saying, you can't go in there, your dress code. I watched someone at a race course just recently and the girl looked amazing and the guy was impeccably dressed in a suit and they were stopped by the security guards forever. And I ended up ringing the head of the race course and saying, for God's sake, get down here and fix this up. These people will never come back to the races. It is not user friendly. What happened to bookmakers? I'm married to one, you go out there, They've completely, 
it's become disconnected. People love to bet. They never mm. stop betting all the time. Australians are great gamblers. But the bookmakers are pushed as though they're sort of lepers into a corner. Their revenue goes to racing Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland. Why don't they out like at Ascot or in England, out in the public, so that people can go and have a bet? They have a choice between the bookmaker and the tote. That's what people used to love. That whole colour of racing, you know, everyone's got to be sort of so black and white. That's not racing. You know, hey, the adage, all are equal above and below the turf. What's happened to it? All the fun's gone out of it. It is. It's it's theatre in, in many ways, racing, well, or it should be. It should be, uh, rather than uh, uh, an app-made life. Uh, Annabelle, what would you do on your first day as the Commissioner of Racing in Australia? Um, I think I'd look to revamp the stabling. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the stabling is fine, um, but I think a lot of the stabling is awful. And you look at how much prize money um, our horses are racing for, and you look at the value of these horses, and some of the boxes, you know, not just at Warwick Farm, I'm sure Ramwick's the same, you know, some of them are terrible, and if you bought a big owner and to see their expensive cult in some of these boxes, you, you know, they'd be horrified. I think the stabling, you know, beautiful stables back in England. Um, and yeah, I just think that the facilities in that sense, just for the horses could be upgraded um, by the clubs. I agree with you, Annabelle, completely. If we went, we were lucky enough to go to Saratoga a few years ago. What a joy to walk around the barns yeah. there, to go into the stand. And there is too much money going into the races and not enough attention to the stabling and the facilities of the horse. I mean, without the horse, you may as well just watch those imitation races they have on the television yeah. sometimes. Yeah, hello. Annabelle Neesham, Gay Waterhouse, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of TDN OzNZ's Connections Cast brought to you by Newgate, raising top class racehorses. Make sure you share with friends, subscribe, rate and review on your podcast service of choice so you never miss an episode and so that others have a better chance of uncovering it. And if you haven't done so already, head to tdnoznz.com.au and subscribe to the daily edition now to keep fully up to date on everything happening in the world of bloodstock and breeding on both sides of the Tasman. I've been Angus Rowland. See you next time. <laughs>